Welcome to Metabolic Matters Podcast, where we embark on conversations with thought leaders, disruptors, change agents, and passionate souls. Together, we'll delve into what truly matters to them. And you'll learn how to metabolize this newfound wisdom so you can transform your own metabolic health. Now let's meet today's guest. Travis Christofferson is a captivating figure at the intersection of science, research, and the relentless pursuit of understanding one of humanity's most formidable adversaries, cancer. With a passion that borders on obsession, Christofferson has established himself as a prominent science writer and a dedicated researcher, earning widespread recognition for his unwavering commitment to exploring the fascinating realm of metabolic oncology. In a world inundated with complex medical jargon and bewildering scientific breakthroughs, Travis stands as a beacon of clarity and insight. He possesses a remarkable ability to distill intricate concepts into accessible narratives that resonate with both experts and lay people alike. His writing serves as a bridge between the esoteric world of metabolic science and the urgent need for innovative cancer treatments, offering a lifelong, excuse me, offering a lifeline of understanding to those grappling with this devastating disease. Travis's journey into the world of metabolic oncology began with a deep-rooted curiosity and a personal connection to the struggle against cancer. His quest to unearth unconventional approaches to cancer therapy has led him to engage with cutting-edge research, forging a path that challenges conventional wisdom and ignites hope for those affected by this formidable adversary. As a metabolic oncology enthusiast, Travis's work transcends mere fascination. It represents a call to action, an invitation to explore the tantalizing possibilities hidden within the complex metabolic pathways that underline, underlie cancer's insidious growth. Through his writing, his research, and his unwavering commitment, Travis empowers us to question the status quo, inspiring a new era of hope and innovation in the battle against cancer. In the following discussion, we'll delve deep into the remarkable journey of this science writer and researcher as he leads us on a captivating exploration of metabolic oncology's potential to redefine our understanding of cancer and to revolutionize its treatment. This treat. episode is brought to you by Keto Mojo. If you're on a ketogenic or low-carb, high-fat diet, you will want to measure your ketones and blood sugar to ensure you're staying on track. And that's exactly where Keto Mojo glucose and ketone meter comes in. The Keto Mojo meter empowers you to take control of your health. It takes the guesswork out of being in ketosis. It provides fast and accurate readings, helping you to fine tune and ensure you're getting the results you're aiming for. Ketosis aids in the treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other chronic metabolic diseases, while also providing the metabolic adaptability needed for a healthier life. When it comes to metabolic health, always test, assess, and address. Never guess and ensure you're making the right choices for your health and well-being with a reliable Keto Mojo blood glucose and ketone meter. Keto Mojo is giving listeners a 15% discount on blood glucose and ketone meter kits using the code NASHA15. That's N A S H A 1 5. Visit keto mojo.com, K E T O M O J O.com, and take the first step toward taking control of your ketogenic diet and your health. Don't guess, test with a Keto Mojo meter. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm incredibly excited about this conversation we're about to have today. Um, I should probably, you know, have given you a little introduction about who my guest is today, but 
I want to tell you another little story about the very first time I met Travis. <laughs> we were standing in line. Do you remember that giant line at a conference in Vegas? Was this 2000, end of 2014 or beginning of 2015? Can't quite remember. Was it Reno or Vegas? Reno, was, right? Was it Reno? It was at a it was at a big casino Some, though. Some place where there's gambling, yeah. Yeah. Super big casino, super long, snaky line at the check-in for this big cancer conference of all things. Um, and a casino in Reno. And I don't know, I'm a I'm a couple people behind Travis, and somehow he just looks sort of familiar to me. And I'm assuming a lot of the people there are for this conference, because it's a big, it was like maybe 1,200 people for this conference. So we assume that probably some people are there. But he had, I think you had it in your arms, or somehow I recognize your face from the back of your book. But I had literally within a week or two of that conference just read Tripping Over the Truth. And I didn't know standing, that. you didn't know that. And so you're, and I'm like, I feel like everyone else might see a famous person, say, walking down the street in LA or something, and they get excited and they might pull out their camera and feel a little fangirl. I felt no different than if I was seeing, like, I don't know, Elvis Presley, you know, on the street somewhere. I started getting so excited and also nervous of, do I, do I go up and say something to this person? Do I, you know, is this going to be weird, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's my nature. <laughs> I walked up to you and I'm like, are you Travis Christopherson? And you looked at me sort of like, I think you're a crazy stalker lady. Luckily, my husband was somewhere back in the line as well. And he also became a crazy stalker to you as well. But when I told you, I, I it, you know, when you said yes, and I told you, I just read your book. Do you remember what you said to me? I do not remember. <laughs> you said Oh, great. You and maybe two other people. <laughs> At that time, I, I had huge imposter syndrome. I did not. And I don't think the book had really sold well at that point. It nope. had just come out and I had no expectations. I didn't know. I really didn't know how many people had read it or if anybody had read it yet. <laughs> and that was such my joy that, like I said, I can't remember if, it, if that conference was like in the latter part of your book had come out, I think, in October 2014. Mm -hmm. um, I think you self-published it to start. Yep. And, you know, the title of the book, for those of you who missed the intro, is Tripping Over the Truth, How the Metabolic Theory of Cancer is Overturning One of Medicine's Most Entrenched Paradigms. So a compelling title. I don't even remember how it landed in my must-read list, but it did. I inhaled it in about 24 hours. Then I'm lucky enough to be in a line in Reno to uh, meet and introduce myself to Travis and for him to realize that, you know, there was someone, at least one person out there who had read his book. What's so wild, Travis, is like you said, like you had this imposter syndrome. People didn't know about it. And I was losing my ever loving mind because as I've described to people before, tripping over the truth book is as if you took, you know, Sudar Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, um, The Emperor of All Maladies, very heady historical perspective of the history, the biology, biography of cancer. And you took Thomas Seyfried's book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, and you cliff note each of them into this beautiful synergistic piece. This little book baby is tripping <laughs> over the truth. And I was like, has no one been so excited about this? It would still take another year or so 
before you became more of the household name that you are in my world, in our circle that you are today. But your book then did get picked up by Chelsea Green Publishing, who's also the publisher of our book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And it got out in hardback. And suddenly you and I got to see each other at a lot more conferences. And boy, howdy, has it been go full steam ever since. So perhaps why don't you pick it up from there? Like what happened from that moment of you being sort of your your perceived nobody to now one of the thought leaders and, and most quoted authors on topics such as metabolic oncology, ketone bodies, and even the future of healthcare in general. How, what, what's been going on there? Yeah, it was, you know, it, I think, like you said, it was a collision of timing because it was, it was a book baby of, of Siddharth Mukherjee's book and Tom's book, because I had read Siddharth's book, I can't, maybe a few months before, and then I had yeah. read Tom's book. Yeah. And it was at this moment in my life where I, I you know, probably midlife crisis-ish time where I needed something new. And I'd always dabbled in writing and that was a perfect, perfect topic. And I think it was just, you know, serendipity luck that from that moment, there's been a lot more attention to this topic, right? And it, it also helps when you write a book where there's, when you're, the people in it are interested in promoting the ideas. Tom Seyfried, Dominic, you know, you, everybody. So it, it could have easily, I think, just fallen into nobody read this self-published book to there was enough luck and inertia that it, it, you know, it sold fairly well. I love it. We, we, we've heard this concept of, of luck uh, show up in our world often. I mean, I love that Travis, you know, is, is talking about that he was lucky that this showed up. There's also these conversations, which I don't believe. I mean, first of all, if you read your work, what is so amazing, Travis, I don't know, you have to know this that to take someone who has a scientific mind, a scientific training and very heady con concepts and be able to write them in the way that is engaging for even the most, you know, fundamental lay person that has no medical scientific background whatsoever and have a story being mm -hmm. told that is compelling and draws people in to turn every single page to find out what's going to happen next and then learn along the way. That is a gift. Well, it, it lended itself to that too, right? Because of Warburg, who is this character and, and this idea, you know, this redemption story of him being completely disregarded, Tom, his, him being slowly rekindled back to life at, at Pete Peterson's lab and Johns Hopkins and Tom Seyfried. And then, you know, and it's got, it, it really goes, but you're right. Humans are storytellers. And if you can bring it into that format to where the characters become people and you see how science works and you see this sort of historical unfolding of all this inertia and why things happen certain ways versus just a textbook of information, right? Yeah. But but what the interesting thing to me is this story that ended, so say 2014 when the book came out in these characters like Siddharth Mukherjee, who has now started this company called Faith Therapeutics, which is a diet-based metabolism company for oncology Bert Vogelstein, who was at the head of the Cancer Genome Atlas, right, the poster boy for, for the somatic mutation theory of cancer, is now has a company called Cage Pharma, which is 3-bromopyruvate, a metabolically acting drug. So it, it's, it still keeps, it circles back. There's, there's even more threads that are coming, coming due. I was yeah. so happy you brought up those two individuals because 
that's just it is some of these people that you and I look to their work, we've, we've learned from them, we've studied from them. We've even kind of, I don't know, fought against them, whether they knew it or not, you know, in some ways, some of the ideas that were put out there where even people like Dr. McCarthy started out sort of trying to disprove the metabolic approach to cancer. The metabolic theory of cancer is now really doing some of the really amazing groundbreaking research in it. And the very person Vogelstein, I'm so happy you mentioned him because I use that word luck very intentionally. He is one of the authors on several papers, I think what 2011 and again in 2017 that just said again, well, you know, guys, sorry, cancer is just bad luck. It's just a luck of the draw, just a Russian roulette. You got nothing at it. And literally as it's coming out this side of the mouth, we're investing and patenting this side of the mouth, which is all about metabolics of cancer. So can you speak about what you've seen in the, in the change? Like, why do you think these folks that were so attached and on the, you know, not willing to get off the sinking Titanic of the somatic mutation theory of cancer, the genetic only cause of cancer. Why do you think they've now sort of jumped onto the life raft and yet still aren't speaking to that fact, like where they're still kind of like just hush, hush, pretend no one will notice as we, as we swim away from the Titanic. What do you think's gone on? You know, if you look at the way science unfolds, always, it's like, it's this slow process. And you can look at so many examples of that. Like look at Peter Mitchell who proposed the, um, how does a cell generate ATP? And there was debates for decades. It was called the Oxfoss Wars, where Peter Mitchell proposed this idea that the mitochondria are creating this, this gradient and, and protons come down through this machinery that creates ATP. And everyone thought he was insane. And literally fights would break out at these conferences you know, and, and and he was actually good friends with Pete Peterson and Dr. Ko, wow. who are who are in my book, and they would counsel him in their lab. He would mm-hmm. come just completely dejected, and they would just try to pick him back. We we know you're right, just stay with. But it affected his health, his life. So these scientific you know debates, they're never like, okay, we were right, you were wrong. It's this slow moving train accumulation of evidence. But you know, the, yeah, the bad luck paper is very implicit in what it implies that cancer is caused by genetic mutations that you have no control over. It's, it's cell regenerate. When a cell divides, you have this probability that errors will be introduced if they are introduced in the wrong genes, cancer, right? So you look at the, you look at the data, the data points to me that are just so compelling are, yeah, you can have those mutations. You can have them in, in healthy cells in a person that never develops cancer. So they're never 100% penetrance on any of these mutations. Number two, when you look at the data from the Cancer Genome Atlas Project, it does, it, no one argues that mutations are not important to cancer, right? I think the way you have to word it is they sim, the somatic mutation theory is not wrong. It is just not the complete picture. It does not provide a comprehensive explanation for what this disease is. And what we missed, I think, is, in my opinion, is we got so swept up in genetics that this this idea that there's this library of Alexander, this DNA with all the information, and everybody thought that everything with our health was in that information. When they, when Clinton gave the speech of the um, the first rough draft of the Human Genome Project, you know, it, it, he was this map will lead to the diagnosis and cure of all human disease, and that's what everybody thought. It was all in the code. What we didn't appreciate is metabolism, right? This whirling flux, billions of reactions that are going on is acting on that DNA all the time. 
And that has a, probably a more outsized influence on health, on cancer than the code itself. And that, that, that they, those experiments are everywhere, like the nuclear transfer experiments we know about. Um, yeah. It's just, it's right there in front of everybody, but they're still stuck on that. There's so much inertia with that original theory that, you know, I don't know if they still believe it or I don't think all, all, I think all people do not believe it now because there's enough luminaries in the field that have more or less said it, but they never like say we were wrong. They just sort of merge into this new paradigm, right? This episode is brought to you by Chemothermia Oncology Center. In the complex world of cancer treatment, it is crucial to choose a center that doesn't just aim to attack the tumor, but one that supports the patient integratively. At Chemothermia, the commitment is clear. Expand the paradigms of cancer treatments with the ultimate goal of creating a comprehensive treatment model, a model which supports you while not just focusing on the tumor. Chemothermia understands the fundamental role of cellular metabolism in health, an overlooked area that is attracting increasing attention across the medical spectrum. By focusing on cellular metabolism, they work to balance and support this crucial system against both the debilitations of cancer and its treatment, increasing the patient's resilience to both. Because every individual's metabolism is unique, Chemothermia believes in a personalized, integrative, and a metabolic approach to cancer treatment. Their commitment is to offer treatments tailored for each patient, ensuring the highest chance of success. Chemothermia Center, where the cancer journey is personalized, where you are supported, and where hope thrives. Learn more at chemothermia.com. That's C-H-E-M-O-T-H-E-R-M-I-A.com. This episode is brought to you by New Quadrant Foundation. When you're navigating the world of health and the world of finance, it's crucial to have trusted partners who understand the bigger picture. That's why I want to introduce you to one of our cherished sponsors, New Quadrant. Established in 2010 by one of our amazing Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health community members, Louise Stoughton, New Quadrant isn't just another financial entity. They're a leading fiduciary and family office service provider in the United Kingdom. With a heart for philanthropy and a unique focus on promoting wellness for professional women, and their mission is to guide their clients so they can turn aspirations into tangible, charitable goals but it doesn't end there. The New Quadrant Foundation, a beacon of philanthropic endeavors, was birthed from the very core values of New Quadrant. The foundation doesn't just house a part of the business profits, it radiates the essence of the entire team's charitable vision. As establishing UK-based charities evolved in complexity, New Quadrant Foundation serves as a guiding light for our supporters across the pond, directing funds to worthy causes and ensuring that your contribution can have the biggest impact possible. We at the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health are humbled and deeply grateful to have been beneficiaries of the generosity from this UK-based charity for years. And for our United States listeners, if you've ever wondered about obtaining tax relief on your donations to a UK foundation, New Quadrant is your compass. With New Quadrant, your philanthropic journey is in caring, capable hands. To learn more, visit newquadrantpartners.com. That's N-E-W-Q-U-A-D-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S dot com. I, I think that's like, if there's nothing wrong with saying, gosh, I didn't know what I didn't know until I knew. And now I'm onto something different. That's not even, it, you don't even have to say that. It's just, wouldn't it be nice to acknowledge that we've all learned over time that we're in this together and that we can also then be humble in our moments when we, you know, when we feel that we are so certain of something, myself mm-hmm. included in this, I have to remember these moments, Right. It's like, we, we have to come back to those moments of we're still learning. This is so like, I feel like once we have one answer, there's 20 more questions. So yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. 
Charles, do you mind? I think the way you describe nuclear transfer studies is so elegant because a lot of people have heard it, maybe have read it, especially like in Tom's book, that's a little bit heady, right? Or have seen it in presentations that even I've given. I think you, you, you orchestrate it in such an elegant way. Do you mind just sharing for the listeners who may be new to what you mean by this, to what helped another reason thinking that maybe the somatic mutation genetic theory of cancer is not the only only, you know, only action in town here, that this would compel us to think about this more terrain-centric, metabolic-centric application. I think the nuclear transfer studies really highlight that. Can you tell us? Yeah. No, they're such clear, beautiful experiments, right? And and they're so, there's experiments where the conclusion is just, it's obvious what it means. And so if if you're going to ask this question, what is cancer? What is driving cancer? Is it the mutations in the nucleus, in the DNA, or is it something in the cytoplasm, mitochondria, epigenetic effects, right? All this information happening in the cytoplasm. So the experiment was simple. And I interviewed both these guys that did it, William Schaefer in Vermont, oh. Jerry Shea in Texas. And the interesting about, thing about these is both of these guys expected to see the exact opposite result. So they were dumb. when they got the result, they were absolutely dumbfounded. And they went back and did these series of controls experiments and, and to make sure that this was the right result. So what they simply were was they removed the nucleus of a normal cell, a healthy cell, took the nucleus of a cancer cell and put it into that cell. So now you have a cancer genome with all the mutations and a healthy cytoplasm. They then expanded those cells in a Petri dish and injected them into mice. Now, what you'd expect if cancer is a genetic disease, that you'd see cancer in these mice. It was something like 98% of them. I think, actually, I think only one of those mice out of 64 developed cancer. So that raises, okay, so what happened there? So then you flip the experiment. You take the nucleus of a normal cell, remove the nucleus of the cancer cell and swap them, put the healthy nucleus into this cancerous cell cytoplasm. Again, you expand the cells, inject them into mice, and if you would, you would expect not to see cancer if it's driven by mutations. What happened? Again, it was in the high ninety percentile of these mice developed cancer. So this, the, the you know, the implications are obvious there that there's something in the cytoplasm that is controlling this disease. It's driving the progression of cancer, and they couldn't explain it. And they're like, maybe it's the transfer itself that's doing this. So they did all these tight controls where they transfer just take out a cancerous nucleus, transfer back into a cancerous cell and see, and yes, you know, cancer and vice versa. And and they didn't have an explanation at the time. They just said it was, you know, vaguely some epigenetic effect that we don't understand. And these experiments were lost. Nobody knew about them. They were just sort of these curiosities that no one really, and I even brought this up with, um, I interviewed him at MIT, right? Who's another key component of the, one of the key architects of the somatic mutation theory. And he said, um, he said, he said, I don't know about those experiments. Um, and I said, well, would you like me to send them? And he said, no, because if they were right, somebody else would have noticed. The direct quote, yeah. <laughs> so you see the you see the sort of and that the problem with cancer biology is there's so many studies, right? Millions and millions. And how do you sort through all that data and make sense of it? I love it. It's it's funny today when you go into the dreaded chat GPT and you type in, how would you describe the difference between somatic mutation theory and the you know uh, metabolic theory of cancer? 
And it really does. This is from 2021. I don't have the updated version, so I know that there's more. But up until 2021, it goes through and gives me like a three-page little write-up describing the history of the somatic mutation and all the things you kind of highlighted just now, as well as the emerging and, and the follow-up of Otto Warburg's work and where we are in today's current current thought processes. And it even goes into the nuclear transfer studies in the chat GPT. Wow. It actually does. And then at the bottom, it has this paragraph that basically is like, but somatic mutation theory is still the way to go. And we're really completely just ignoring this other side. So at the end of the day, even with everything we know, even with a relatively not successful um, war on cancer, we are still shouting the same misinformation or not complete information. And so I'm curious, Travis, because you now have been at this at least since... 2010, 11, when you would have read, you know, Mukherjee's book and Seafried's book and 2014, all the work you had to do to get your first book, Tripping Over the Truth, out there. So the work and research you had to do, and then the almost decade since that's been out, how do you personally see cancer today? How, how would you describe it to your children, to a stranger on an airplane, to someone over a cocktail, you know, at a cocktail party that knows nothing about this world? How would I describe cancer as what it is? What the the cellular process? Okay, well, or, just like, or how you see it? You know, even on an esoteric, not necessarily even a scientific side of things. Okay, I would say that I'll give you two answers: the the mechanical answer and then the philosophical answer. The mechanical answer: the way I would describe cancer is it's best described as a metabolic epigenetic disease. And I, and I consider epigenetics and metabolism woven together very tightly, right? And, and the reason is when you look at what is happening, I'll, I'll use one example, right? We all describe cancer as through the, is there 11 hallmarks now? Hallmarks of cancer? Yeah, I think it's almost, I think it's 15, 14 or 15 now. Okay, okay. Yeah. And that's the most highly cited paper, I think, in cancer biology. It's what, putting a face to what cancer is. It has these hallmark features that describe what it is uncontrolled growth, um, rewiring of what they call rewiring of cellular metabolism, resistance of cell death, immortality, all these characteristics of cancer. And, and when you look at, look at two of those characteristics, and, and, and according to somatic mutation theory, all of those hallmarks are driven by mutations, right? In key oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. So if we look at one, two of those hallmarks, one is um, rewiring metabolism, so the Warburg effect, and the second is uh, resistance of apoptosis or immortality. We can look at the cancer cell and, and what happens is you see a genetic and epigenetic shift from metabolism and, and epigenetic signaling to the genome where you switch from one isozyme of hexokinase to another one. There's four isozymes. You switch from hexokinase one to hexokinase two. Hexokinase two is not subject to product inhibition. So it allows glucose to go just go undeterred down the pathway. So that's why we see this Warburg effect because there's no control to it. And number two, it binds to the VDAC channel, which is the voltage dependent ionic channel that is responsible for apoptosis. It closes it. So it immortalizes a cell. So we have two hallmark features of cancer described by not in mutations, but an epigenetic shift. Can you describe them by those mutations? No, there's no, you can't describe One cell might have mutation ABC, one might have ZXY, one might have zero mutations. So to me, that it just blows apart what it is. It, it's a, it's a epigenetic 
metabolic disease. Philosophically, when I look at cancer, you look at like system-wide where we spent so much effort trying to cure stage four cancer. And that's medicine in general, where we watch until a disease is diagnosable and then we try to treat it. Alzheimer's, you know, go down the list, everything, diabetes, your blood glucose is high. Well, let's try to treat your diabetes. We've spent so much time doing this when we should be, you know, going down upstream and trying to prevent this from happening. Because if you, there was a study, I'm sure you know, everyone's quotes, I think it was University of Chicago. If you invented a pill that cured cancer tomorrow, it would take, it would, it would increase human lifespan by 2.9 years. And, and why is that? Because cancer is predominantly a disease of aged people, right? And it's, I think it's when you're 50 or over, you have 90% higher chance of getting cancer, nine, 90% compared to someone 24 or younger. So it's a disease of aging. And, and what happens if you cure cancer? All of these other age-related diseases are just queued up and waiting, right? So it, it, it doesn't make... So, so when I look at the, the system-wide approach to trying, the way we try to treat cancer is just misguided. We should be going upstream and trying to, how do you keep somebody from developing cancer, right? What, what can we look at? How do we change this screening paradigm? How do, when can we incorporate these blood biopsies that can detect early stage cancer? And if they say you have stage zero cancer, what should we do to mitigate your chance of progressing? So those are two different answers from, you know, our approach to it from a medicine standpoint and, and what the disease is. I love it. And I think that's a really balanced um, review of it. And that actually speaks to a lot of what you start to tease out in your book, Curable, which is mm -hmm. how an unlikely group of radical innovators is trying to transform our healthcare system. I think you just spoke to a lot of the pain points and where we're stuck there. What do you think it's going to take to change our healthcare system to start to take a more proactive preventive role? Oh boy, I, I don't know what changes in Asia. I, you probably have a better idea of that than I do. <laughs> this, this, I mean, it, it is such an entrenched system, right? Yeah. I, I don't know how you change that system other than, I think slowly over time, the vector of humanity goes in the right direction. And I think we'll get there. And technology will, will enhance that process. Like I said, these, these blood biopsies are getting good. You know about DATAR. Uh, oh, heck yeah. You just we read their papers. Yeah. yeah, and it's like 88% they can detect stage zero and stage one, 88% of the time. That's pretty profound. Yeah. yeah. Now, I would love to introduce you to one of our sponsors, Hyperbaric Medical Solutions. They are the leading provider of hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the United States, dedicated to helping patients achieve optimal health by bringing the revolutionary healing powers of HBOT. At the helm is Dr. Alan Katz, a distinguished professional with double board certifications in emergency and hyperbaric medicine. With over three decades in both fields, his leadership ensures that patients receive nothing short of excellence. Hyperbaric Medical Solutions specializes in the delivery of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, integrating other regenerative medicine and innovative services to fulfill its mission to enhance patients' quality of life and well-being through personalized care plans. Do you want to see if hyperbaric oxygen therapy is right for you? Take advantage of a free 15-minute information session with one of their experienced clinicians. Visit hmshbot.com. Do you have any background medical training? Are you a nurse? Are you a physical therapist? Do you have a, a degree in clinical nutrition? 
Have you yourself been a patient dealing with cancer, but have a really good grasp of the sciences, maybe worked in some adjunct scientific uh, community or have some type of a medical certification of some sort, but you're not quite at the level of a clinician where you're able to order labs and imaging and prescribe pharmaceuticals and diagnose and treat disease. If you fit in that first category, you are the perfect candidate to join our TRAIN advocacy program. We'd love to have you. You would be a great voice to add to our community and a great resource to so many patients looking to get more connection to their physicians in applying the metabolic approach to cancer. I want to introduce you to another one of our amazing sponsors, Hack Your Health by KetoCon, which is a conference that focuses on improving metabolic health through nutrition and lifestyle. The event features industry experts who share research and insights on a variety of topics, including low-carb, ketogenic, and zero-carb diets, along with stress reduction, sleep optimization, gut health, emotional health, and so much more. It is an immersive experience that includes keynote speakers, specialty panels, breakout sessions, and interactive activities like the red light therapies, cold plunge, natural movement classes, and sauna. And it is a transformative event that leaves attendees feeling inspired and motivated. Hack Your Health will take place May 31st through June 2nd, 2024 in Austin, Texas. And as a special treat for our listeners, they have given us a discount code that will give you $50 off of a three-day general attendee or a three-day VIP or a Sunday-only expo hall pass. Just go to www.hackyourhealth.com and enter the discount code METABOLIC. That's M-E-T-A-B-O-L-I-C. The code is active now and will remain active until May 1st, 2024. But don't delay. They always sell out and you won't want to miss Hack Your Health by KetoCon. Visit hackyourhealth.com today. So I think the tech will probably drive. I don't know what you think of Ozempic and those type of things, if they're going to be a net benefit to people over time. Well, it's funny. We, you know, we, we think so because it's targeting the metabolic process. So we get kind yeah. of excited thinking, oh, here's a pill that could maybe head this off at the past, but the side effect profile that are stacking up. My understanding, and again, we're new to this, we don't have all the data, but what we're watching and observing clinically is it may push back some of the metabolic drivers, but it's further damaging the mitochondria mm. in a variety of other ways. And so isn't that also how standard of care is impacting cancer? Yes, you can get some tumor pushback with some uh, aggressive oxidative therapies, you know, surgery, or excuse me, uh, chemotherapies, radiation targeted therapies, but you also will take some, you know, you'll take some other victims along the way of the healthy cells and make those um, mitochondria much more vulnerable. So the field is still staying vulnerable and, and opportunistic to move into that space. So I think our our world just wants the easy fix. They want the easy button. They want the pill. They th they hope it's there. But already there's massive class action lawsuits starting. I just had a consult right before this of a woman who, um, you know, basically almost stroked out from getting on it. It completely changed all kinds of things in her physiology. And she was, you know, she was someone who seemed like the perfect candidate, 274 pounds, really struggling to lose that weight, done everything right in the dietary lifestyle until we dug deeper when she and I dug deeper together, we realized actually none of the fundamentals had been dealt with. And so they hadn't even run her insulin levels. Her insulin was 24.9. It's like, yeah. you know, so Ozempic, one of its side effects is it's going to cause hyperinsulinemia, which is weird. Oh, I didn't it know that. A, it's like a loop back system. And okay. she never employed things like intermittent fasting. 
she'd never employed things like just um, you know, working on the, what she was eating. She'd made a lot of nice changes, but she hadn't really carbohydrate restricted before. She mm -hmm. hadn't really done any intermittent fasting. She was, you know, perimenopausal post, uh, post, post young children. So a lot of her hormonal things were playing in. She wasn't sleeping. And if you're not sleeping, your insulin goes up. Like no one was addressing her terrain. Right. Yeah. And so my hope is that if we can actually look at the whole picture of these folks, Ozempic is going to be obsolete um, and that we can start to work with them in this field. And that's where I think, um, I think is where Western medicine or the, the system of medicine we have currently into what you talk about in the curable book, it is inherently flawed in that it doesn't allow us the time or the space or the luxury of doing those deeper dive explorations. And so you know, when you said, I don't know, I feel like that's a really honest answer. I, I basically feel the same way. But what I do know is I've spent over 25 years in my in my own life and my own career trying to work within, improve upon and even fix the broken system. And it just it's so, as you said, so deeply entrenched, so, so deranged in so many ways that I've just kind of thrown that idea away. And I think we're just going to go build a new one. So I mean, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hoping is these relationships and these conversations with you and other thought leaders in this space. I think that's what we have to do is start to look at this from another way. And so when I think about what you've learned, basically, I would say, wouldn't you say the last 12 years, this has been your interest, maybe longer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, longer. Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in, it wasn't my primary vocation, but yeah, for, for ever since school, ever since I got out of school. And yeah. what did, like, we kind of missed that first part. We jumped right in, but what was the impetus to start talking about cancer? Did you have your own story? That, with well, I've always loved biochemistry and molecular biology, and that was just a collision of, of you know, I needed to do an independent study class to finish my master's and I was looking what to do it on. And I ran into Tom's book just, just by random luck. And so that, that was, I never thought in a million years that I'd, I'd be studying cancer involved in cancer. I, I, you know, between cancer and age, and aging, those are the two to me, the, the most fascinating subjects in biology, human biology. And don't they cross in your opinion, maybe I should ask this, in your opinion, do you think that longevity or the aging process and cancer really, have a, 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 a mating point? 100%. Yeah. Because what, what happens with aging is, and, and David Sinclair coined it the, the information theory of aging, but, but it, it existed long before him. There was um, Teschendorf, a Russian guy, West and Beck, a German guy and an English guy in the UK. And they coined this term epigenetic drift a long time ago, which is when you look at the epigenome, right, which is just consists of of markers. So when you think of a, when we think of DNA, we think of it, these two dimensional strands, but it's this bound up three dimensional wrapped up, you know, I think if you extend it out, it's like three yards, each chromosome. So it's tightly wound on histones and it's marked. So we put the, the body will put methylation marks. So a carbon atom on genes to turn them off, take that off to turn them on. And it's active. There's erasers and riders and it's going on all the time. What happens over time when you're born, every tissue type is perfect fidelity in the epigenome. So a skin cell is expressing 100% skin related genes and it's operating beautifully. And as you age, what happens is that epigenome drifts towards randomness, stoichiatically it drifts. And so all of a sudden that skin cell is expressing genes of, of the liver or a neuron that it should not. It becomes dysfunctional, the cell when you look at it, you know, a human being as it ages, you just see this 
withering and dysfunction as it goes on. And that's what's happening at the level of the epigenome. So that, that where that collides with cancer is you see this slow turning off of tumor suppression and slow turning on of oncogenes like hexokinase 2 over time. Where that tipping point happens, you know, I think it takes some, some, some clinical insults like a viral infection or something happening over time, which, which sort of locks a cell into that, that proliferation state. But yeah, they're, they're one in the same. And when you look at the genome of a cancer cell, it looks like it's 300 years old. It's, it's locked those, that stoichiatric drift in even further and faster as it's you know, drifting towards this kind of randomness towards more proliferative state. So it, it's impossible to separate the two out. They're, they're very, very, you know, they're, one is the cause of the other. Amazing. That's such a visual now that I'm holding on to here. And, you know, that's, I just, I just think about this little shriveled up the cristae and this like shriveled up, you know, new, uh, 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 cell wall, you know, the wall around the mitochondria. It's like, wow, it does. It looks like a shriveled raisin. It's depressing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but you know dolls we made in grade school <laughs> yeah and we talk we, we talk about well we think about um you know the simplest stuff like you were talking about is always the right solution these lifestyle changes that are right in front of anybody can do them and those the best way to stay healthy is obviously this a great lifestyle um i just wonder how far the the, the thrust in aging right now is this idea that you can actually manipulate the cell to de-aging itself through Yamanaka um, factor expression, right? So there may be this intrinsic hack in every cell that if you activate it, you can activate the program of, of fertilization. When you, take, um, when you take two cells and you create an embryo, what happens there is the epigenome is wiped clean and reinstalled. So you take, mm -hmm. say, two 40-year-olds that... that um, that, that have a baby, that they're going to take those 40-year-old cells, genomes, and completely rewire them. It turns out you can hack that process in every single cell. And, the, and that's the thrust of anti-aging research is in that arena. There's Altos Labs, have you heard of them? Yeah. Yeah. So it's always billionaires that want to want yeah. to fund this kind of stuff because they want to live forever. Yeah. yeah. So they, they've hired the sort of the luminaries in the field that are doing this. And the, and the goal is just see if you can do this. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, that's a really good segue to, I mean, you, you clearly are gifted with word, gifted with teaching, sharing, passionate about setting up a foundation to do more and more research in this area. It sounds like one of your areas of passion right now is in sort of the longevity anti-aging space, but I know you're working on a few projects simultaneously as you do. What is really lighting you up right now? What are you very excited about that you're currently working on? Yeah. So, so one interesting story is if, if whoever's read Tripping Over the Truth, if you've read that book, there's a story of Dr. Young Ko, who fell into this lab of Peter Peterson, who was the one who took the torch from Warburg. And, and he says, you know, I was the only one working in the field. And that may be true um, of this idea that cancer was metabolic in nature. And so in that lab, they were trying to figure out how to target through metabolism. And she came up with this idea of this small molecule drug that could enter selectively into the pores that allow lactic acid to escape because they're upregulated on cancer cells. And it, it out came this molecule 3-bromopyruvate that initially showed absolutely incredible promise, right? I mean, it was stunning. It had an article in the Baltimore Sun. Um, then 
a patent dispute happened that really derailed this process of good PR. And you fast forward to now, and what happened was she, she did have funding, but the company imploded. They were just starting to treat the first patients in the trial. But she's shepherded the drug to this. It's IND enabled by the FDA. A clinical team is set up. It's absolutely ready to go. And when you look at this drug, in my opinion, you know, cancer drugs preclinically, when you're trying to decide what should go on to clinical trials, it's just a comparative process. What is every mouse model is different. So you're just sort of comparing the data. This drug looks absolutely incredible. You know, it could be a, a game changer in cancer. The funding is the difficult part because she's a one man band at the moment. So, so anybody interested in this, the company is called Primo Cure. And Primo Cure, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And this is my understanding is she's also, because there are some people you alluded to earlier that are trying to take the patent or block her patent or even make, get this, get to the finish line before her, even though it's her work mm -hmm. and her brilliance. And this, unfortunately, it's not the first time this has happened in the scientific space and definitely, unfortunately, not the first time it's happened to her. Um, yeah. I'm interested in that you have shared with me that she's even taken it to a whole nother level, sort of a more of a novel delivery of it and sort of a re, I don't know, like repurposing of it. Was that, would that be a, a appropriate description? And she's taken it to a less toxic um, way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really reactive molecule. And yeah. most of the biochemists have looked at it initially is like, don't even touch it. It's not going to go yeah. anywhere. It's too reactive. So what her art was, and she's brilliant. I mean, she's a biophysicist and a biochemist, which I think she got her degree, both of them in two years or three years. Um, but what she did was she, it's the formulation, the combination of buffers, the manufacturing that, that take it from this, you know, overly reactive molecule to this molecule that potentially could be therapeutic. And, and that has taken her literally, you know, 20 years of her life. We are so grateful for the support from the Hyperthermia Cancer Institute. At HCI, they understand the struggle and fear that comes with a cancer diagnosis, but they also believe in offering hope and cutting edge therapy to their patients. Imagine a treatment that not only statistically increases the success rate of other cancer therapies, but also comes with virtually no side effects. Hyperthermia does just that. It's a beacon of hope for those navigating the arduous journey of cancer treatment. Studies have shown that hyperthermia stimulates the immune system, giving your body an additional ally in the fight against cancer, helping you to regain health, vitality, and peace of mind. Located in the heart of Los Angeles, the Hyperthermia Cancer Institute specializes in the administration of non-invasive, localized hyperthermia therapy using FDA-approved advanced ultrasound technology. This innovative treatment targets cancer cells with precision, delivering heat that enhances the effectiveness of both radiation therapy and chemotherapy. At the Hyperthermia Cancer Institute, you're not just a patient. You're a valued individual deserving the utmost advanced and compassionate care available. Join the many who have turned a fearful diagnosis into a story of survival and hope. Discover the difference that hyperthermia therapy can make in your cancer treatment journey. Visit the Hyperthermia Cancer Institute online at hcioncology.com, h-c-i-o-n-c-o-l-o-g-y.com, or call 888-580-5900 to schedule a consultation. You know, Travis, one of the things I love about you is you're just so humble in your heart and soul, and you're just so committed to um, seeing everybody thrive, and you don't seem to have a, a, an antagonistic or a competitive bone in your body. And I really love that you play so well in this metabolic space, and I think that you're a really good ally for somebody like Dr. Ko to help get her 
brilliance into the world. And we know we're actively trying to find resources to help her get this trial off the ground. Anybody else listening, we'd love to see this happen. We have so many ideas of how her therapy could be integral to the way we in the MTIH community approaches cancer and would love to see this as standard of care. So I really, really am grateful that this is one of your passion projects right now. And are you doing a lot of that fundraising through your foundation? Can you tell us a little bit about your foundation? Yeah, no, the, the foundation's separate from that. That'll be whoever okay. wants to vent in Premacure, that'll be, a, you know, wh whoever is interested in cancer, venture capital, whoever, if philanthropics, organizations, we just don't have enough. To get the phase one trial, I think you need about $7 million. Yep. which is not, you know, in the not as bad as you scope of cancer drugs, that's not a lot. And with this drug, you you could see fast track from phase one, but the foundation we focus on, um, you know, the mission there is just uh, cancer, metabolic cancer research. So we fund projects that look at everything you do, the combinations of therapies that might be most efficacious from mice to to leaving the bench to going to the bedside, what should we bring forward in combinations? Um, a lot of the work we fund is in Tom Seyfried's lab, you know, and he's very focused on this idea of cancer fuels, eliminating cancer fuels or reducing them, glucose and glutamine. And he's had some, you know, absolutely outstanding results. So, yeah, that's a lot of preclinical work. We've done some age, aging funding. Cool. Um, that's one of those things, too, that I just had no idea that would that would people would actually come and fund. We've had some absolutely wonderful philanthropic people make donations. And so that's been a lot of fun. I love it. I love it. So Travis, now that you're, you've got like famous kids, like training for Olympics and, you know, random things like that, you're still writing, you're helping Dr. Coe bring her dream forward and, and hopefully change, you know, cancer care as we know it, helping Dr. Seafried bring his dream forward. You're even on our board and helping us bring our dream forward. Where, what is your dream? What, what are you <laughs> up to now? I'm, I'm like, I'm really curious to see what the two of you, these beautiful beings that you have brought into the world, they're off now no. living in your own world. What does the next phase of your life look like? That's a beautiful question. You know, I've tried to organize my life to where I don't, to eliminate stress. Cause I had a lot of, I, I worked really hard to get to a point where I knew I'd be okay. And then I don't have to have dogs in the fight and every like like you said, I don't have to worry about, I can just be, I, I mostly go where I'm most interested, where I see the most promise. Like I'm able to help Dr. Ko with this drug or the foundation's research, whatever that, you know, the most interesting things are I can I can pursue, but I'm, I'm grateful and lucky that I've been able to organize, you know, my life like that. Yeah, and my kids, yeah, they, my, my sons- Brag like, on him, brag on him. Yeah, he's, he, he, it's like a Wes Anderson movie. This just child, my boy was was like, you know, computer games, and he was a yo-yo com competitor. We drove him around to yo-yo competitions, not baseball, not football, soccer. He was like, he was a regional runner-up in two A in, in the Minneapolis championship. And so, out of nowhere, he starts training and becomes this beast. And now he's the number one push athlete on on the USA bobsled team, and he's he's a uh, going to do the world cup again this year. And then the Olympics are in Italy in 2026. My daughter is this just wonderfully brilliant biochemist straight A's at Montana state. So yeah, just, you know, watching them develop and being part of that is, is incredibly rewarding. But that's oh. it. Other than that, my life is very simple and boring. I love your simple boring life. It is definitely not simple and boring to me. I could just like listen for hours to the things in your brain. And so 
In a closing note, I want to know what, if any, daily practices you do to manage, maintain, and create metabolic health. Yeah, good, great. I, I'm hung up on on ketosis, and I hope it's one of the right answers. I am just fascinated by that physiology and what that does. And you can't, it is so many elegant things happen from that simple molecule, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that it cannot be a coincidence, right? Um, it's a different fuel. It's an epigenetic signaler. It blocks the formation of inflammatory complexes. So I just try to maintain ketosis and I don't do it in any religious fashion. I, I try to I kind of do it seasonally, like I'll bounce in and out for most of the winter. And then um, the summertime, I might be in it less, but I, I, and I don't know the right answer for people to do it continuously or should it be done through fasting? Um, I think you just go by feeling, you know, what, what do yeah. I feel best doing? And so that's my main, that's my main thing. And then it's just lifestyle. It's good sleep, of course, stress and being engaged. You know, the number one, I'm sure, you know, when you look at the data from epidemiological data, one of the number one health predictors is uh, close relationships yeah. and social engagement. So just being involved is, is the signaling that comes through that is, is fascinating and affects everything from your metabolism to inflammation, everything. I love it. I think you actually just spoke very specifically to my version of the CDC, which is circadian rhythm. So you tipped off about the importance of sleep, diet or lack thereof. So the importance of therapeutic ketosis and the way you eat your food and the way you fuel your body and the final C community and connection. So yeah. uh, you're living, you're, you're the living testament to my CDC. So I love that. And for folks who want to learn more about these powerful little signaling molecules. Um, Travis, is, is this your second or your third book? I think it was your second nope. book. That was the okay. third book. It yeah, was, third. okay. So Ketones, The Fourth Fuel, Warburg to Krebs to Veach, the 250 year journey to find the fountain of youth. Really interesting. So a lot of people are like, oh, this is a fad. It's these things. I just, I hope you read this book to realize that it is not. It is what we were literally, um, created to be able to do naturally and we can help harness that energy in really beautiful ways and travis is a really good example of that and the offspring that he's created <laughs> in the sound of it we can all um uh, try to be amazing talented yo-yo um uh, people in the world with our uh, ketosis parents so Travis, you are just an absolute angel on earth for all that you do to bring so much to support so many. And we are incredibly grateful for your time, your wisdom, your humor, your compassion, and your humility. And I hope we get to have more conversations in the future. Oh, thanks, Nisha. This has been fun. It's, it's about time you do this because I knew you'd be, you'd be brilliant to be in a podcast host. Aw, all the <laughs> best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Metabolic Matters. We hope you found today's conversation insightful and empowering. As we wrap up today's episode, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the incredible team and supporters who make this podcast possible. First, we'd like to thank our production team, Alex Sanchez, Cindy Kennedy, Jessica Gilman, and Lynn Hughes for their hard work behind the scenes. Our theme song was written by Julie Newmark and performed by Whiskey Flower. And finally, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and being a part of the Metabolic Matters community. Do you want to learn more? Please visit our website, metabolicmatters.org, and you can follow us on Instagram. 
If you liked this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends and family. And if you want to help support our mission, spreading awareness and knowledge about metabolic health, reach out. We'd love you to join with us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell to stay updated on upcoming episodes. We have so much exciting content coming your way. Until next time, stay curious, stay empowered, and remember, your metabolic health matters.